This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. We can't love the neighbor without loving the neighborhood that shaped the neighbor and also being concerned with the issues that the neighborhood faces that the neighbor uh, emerges from. And what try what what we tend to do is try to love the neighbor but separate them from their social location, right? And you can't do that because the neighbor's uh, social location and the neighbor are all integrated, right? <laughs> this is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, a podcast where we're learning how to do good better. I'm Kent Hannon, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. I'm joined usually by my colleague, Jamie Ayton. Uh, he can't be with us today, so I'm really grateful that our producer, Laura Finch, is with us for this conversation as we explore how we can more effectively love our neighbors from everyday acts of kindness to navigating the most complex humanitarian challenges facing the church and society today. We're really grateful to have Terrence Lester with us today. Terrence is a speaker, activist, and author who works with systemic poverty. He is known for nationwide campaigns that bring awareness to issues surrounding homelessness, poverty, and economic inequality. Uh, his new book is When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. Terrence, welcome. We're so grateful that you're with us. Kent, I'm so excited to be here, and I'm excited about having this conversation with you all. Yeah, and we want to start just jumping right in. I think Laura and I noticed how hope is the theme, and you 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 work with people who are facing challenges. You face challenge challenging systemic issues. Uh, we'll start off with you know how do you how do you stay hopeful in the midst of this work that you're doing? Yeah, well, I think I think that is twofold. Uh, firstly, this is probably the number one question that I'm often asked is what inspires you, what keeps you going. Um, and my response is normally that one, I never forget the so social location that I derived from. Um, early on in my life, I experienced uh, temporary homelessness myself, mm -hmm. even as a teenager. Mm -hmm. I remember times when my teachers and educators would label me as a troublemaker, not understanding the full social context of mm -hmm. Of, of my life. And, um, you know, there are times when I would sleep in parks or, you know, stay from a friend's house to another friend's house. Uh, even as a teenager, imagine trying to go to school and focus on the lesson uh, when you have those types of challenges. Uh, the second part of that is, uh, you know, the Lord in my life began to send a bunch of people into my life to see goodness in me, to call out uh, the potential in me, to invest in me, uh, offering books. I established and built a, a pretty robust library. And I was mentored from people that I've never even met before. And as I began to overcome a lot of my personal challenges, I had this mentor in my life at the time. His name was Mr. Moore. Uh, he told me that my story could be used as a bridge of hope 
even for those that I could relate to, right? And mm -hmm. so uh, when I started Love Beyond Walls, uh, the first year he passed away from cancer, but I'll never forget him telling me that uh, a part of my journey would be to see people. And that's what I've spent most of my years doing in founding and leading this organization is becoming the stranger that was, um, uh, you know, that came into my life and saw me even at my worst, uh, sitting with me, being proximate to me and even listening to me. And so a lot of my hope is derived from the proximity that I have with uh, community members. Uh, when I get a chance to sit with people and hear their hopes and their fears and their struggles and understand their origin stories, um, it, it does something within me. Not only does it show me ways in which we can be creative to solve uh, issues, but it also gives me hope because I get a chance to meet a person and humanize that person and see that person and share the love of God with that person. I love that. It's uh, just, uh, yeah. Uh, one thing, Laura, I want to hear your question. I was just thinking my experience working in Haiti and I think I would get that question a lot just because Haiti has these ups and downs and cycles, you know, for many reasons to break out of them. People would ask, you know, why do you feel hopeful? And when I'm more at a distance, I start that question creeps in as well. When I'm there with people and people aren't losing hope and they're living their lives and you have community and fellowship, you know, I, I just felt like I didn't have, if, if they weren't losing hope, I didn't have a choice about losing hope. You know, I was just kind of carried along in, in their hope and carried along in, in a community of hope. Yeah, that, that's so important. I love how you bring out that theme of proximation in the book, Terrence. Um, and, and there was one part um, that reads, we have to normalize paying attention to the times when our privileges have sheltered us from the realities other people have to suffer through. Um, which, which brings me to another question I had for you. Um, the, the idea of margin. So that's, it's a very popular term right now. A lot of people are talking about, do we, do you have margin or not? Um, and you in the book talk about how, if we have no margin in our lives, we really can't, take the love of God to the margins of society. There's just, we can't get proximate if we don't have that space. So um, can you share a story of a time um, when you just realized how tired you were and, and just really didn't have any margin and needed to recalibrate some things? Yeah, um, it's a great, great question. I know that the term margin is being used often in society and culture. And I'm actually really grateful that people are starting to uh, talk about this term because margin uh, holds us accountable to what's uh, a priority or priorities that we have in our lives, right? Uh, what we uh, tend to spend most of our time doing oftentimes mm -hmm. may be good things, but they're not really the best things. And mm -hmm. sometimes people uh, tend to overload their plate uh, just to distract themselves uh, from their own thoughts or from dealing with their own internal uh, issues that they haven't mm -hmm. confronted or faced. Uh, and sometimes people just like to be busy uh, because in American society, busyness is like a badge of honor, right? Uh, the, right. the busier I am, the more worthy I am. And uh, that's further from the truth. And I can remember early on in my life when 
um, my social location was just flooded with this ideology that busyness was the way. You work hard, you do a bunch of things, you overload your plate, you don't look down, uh, you keep your hands to the plow and you just keep going and going and going and going. Um, well, I ended up uh, in the hospital in my 20s uh, because I had all of these things that I was trying to accomplish. And I remember talking to a, a doctor at the time and he he asked me, like, what, what's going on? You're young. Uh, what's happening? And I started to unpack that I was doing so much, uh, so many things that I thought was good, but they weren't necessarily the best things in my life. Mm -hmm. And it was causing me to be overly tired, super fatigued, and not necessarily available in the way that God could use my life, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we're mm -hmm. talking about. There are a lot of willing people. We're not talking about an issue of willingness. We're talking about the issue of availability, right? And I think when availability aligns with uh, the margin uh, that we are all trying to seek and rearrange in our schedules, then uh, our greatest use and greatest glory that we can bring to God can be um, something that it becomes actualized. Well, I really like how you explained that the margin. The only thing I didn't like about that was how personally you felt like you were speaking <laughs> to me as the semester, <laughs> as the semester ends here. So, uh, but what well said and thinking of that and thinking of semesters, we're finishing up um, the semester here with our master's degree program. We have Wheaton in humanitarian and disaster leadership um, you, you write, I love how you write about uh, vocation in here. And it's something we're thinking about a lot as we're on a campus. I want to read two quotes and just have you respond to them of how you, maybe how you came to this answer and what you would say specifically to someone who's, you know, an undergraduate or graduate level looking to get involved in this kind of work. And one is, there's no correct way in which to identify the particular issue with which you should become involved. Your fight may be found in what makes you burn with frustration or what lights you up with joy. And then you also said, as well said, and then you also said it's when we all function in our own areas of expertise and passion that the most effective work can be undertaken. Can you say a little bit about how you learned that and what your advice is for how, how someone who's at this vocational transition going into similar work can, can find what this means, how they do these things that you're talking about? Yeah. Um, I can I can honestly say that the work that I am doing now, currently, like real time, was not the work that I always thought that I would be doing. Um, it was a journey of self-discovery, sitting with uh, and realizing how I was wired. We live in a, a society and culture that is you know, highly copy and paste, or if we use social media terminology, repost, right? Mm -hmm. And so many people try to lift someone else's life or story and, and paste it onto their own life, uh, kind of suppressing our, our own God wiring. Well, I, I did that, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to be like everything that I, I saw. I, anything that I saw that would was successful or deemed successful or um, you know, operating or functioning properly, I was attracted to that. 
until I really had this understanding that maybe I should go within and see how I am wired uniquely and what my distinct uh, contribution could be in society and culture. And that uh, started with me understanding my, you know, creativity and uh, doing assessments and understanding like, you know, the skills that I bring to the table and being okay if those skills uh, look differently uh, in the context that I'm using them in versus uh, the context of the church. Because oftentimes people think that, you know, the only ministry platform is behind the pulpit, right? And God has so many uh, uses for you uh, in, with your skill sets. If we all believe that, you know, everybody has a ministry uh, of sharing the good news, that could be used in, in so many other ways. And so I had to really wrestle with understanding my unique contributions, my God wiring, and uh, being okay with pursuing those in an untraditional way. Uh, there's a story in the book that I tell uh, sometimes because so I, I, I know that people may be bivocational or trivocational mm -hmm. or like still on their journey. I tell a story in there of a friend who is a medical doctor that uh, had a knack for organization and research and all of these things that she actually uses in her professional career, but was feeling this this burden of not knowing how to uh, be used of God outside of this this place of work. And mm -hmm. she made this mental shift of saying, well, let me use the skill sets that I have in my career and see if they're transferable to be used uh, in the in the context of the church. And so she helped to organize a her church's first uh, racial diversity and inclusion conference, um, helped to you know organize all of the speakers, got people involved. And she she wasn't even a, a speaker herself, but her skill set set up the platform for her church to really wrestle with some uh, deep issues uh, in society and culture for the very first time. And that's what I'm talking about. Like uh, you may have a, a, a skill set of research. You may have a skill set of cooking. You could have a skill set of artistry. Uh, you could find unique ways that those skill sets can be used in a greater capacity. Uh, and sometimes even outside the four walls of the church and, I went on that road of discovery of just sitting with myself and trying to really unpack how can I leverage how God has wired me for God's greatest glory, uh, no matter where I am. Would you have any advice for someone then who is realizing maybe, um, maybe I do need to take this outside the church, right? Maybe, maybe this is a nonprofit and not, um, another ministry. Do you have advice for that person? Yeah. Um, and if I'm honest, Love Beyond Walls was not always a nonprofit organization. I was a church planter for two years. I remember uh, going through church planting assessment, being assessed and trained, uh, becoming a part of a church planting network having a, a parenting church that, uh, or, uh, you know, sponsoring church, however you define it, uh, to support us and started to do this work in a really dense area and soon found out that it 
it took a lot of a lot more outside support uh, to sustain this work than it would, uh, you know, from within. And what happened was uh, there were times when people would stop volunteering or coming to support, etc., and the church actually failed. And I was frustrated, and I considered myself a failure. Right? I'll never forget sitting in my office crying. And at the time I was reading this book uh, written by Dave Gibbons, it's called Zealot. And one of the lines in the book goes something like, God can use your greatest pain to lead you to your destiny. And I don't know why, but those words jumped off the page. And I, I sat before my whiteboard and I just started to write all of these one word answers on the board responding to this question. What, what is the greatest pain that you've had in your life? And I wrote things down like outcast and misunderstood and excluded. And I started to write all these things down. And I'm not homeless at the time, but I saw this common thread of sociological homelessness, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, maybe that's an issue that you know I, I really need to lean into. And I'll never forget uh, talking to my mentor at the time and I was telling him, and uh, he said, well, how has God shown up in your life? I know this has failed before, but how has God shown up in your life? And I, I told him that I was always passionate about like advocating for those who are impoverished. Uh, my story relates to it. Every time mm -hmm. we do any type of campaigns, people are more mobilized or organized around it. And he says, why don't you just do that? What would you call it? And on the church planning t-shirt, was the name Love Beyond Walls. And I say, I know, I, I know, I got the name. Mm. So there are a few things in that story. One is reimagining what failure is, you know, because mm. sometimes we set expectations and we think that we are supposed to meet these certain expectations. And like my stepfather always told me that you need to keep your plans fluid, but your vision solid that you have to be pliable on this journey, that at any moment things could change. It doesn't negate the fact that you don't have a vision or have some general sense of the direction you're headed in, uh, but you need to be pliable, right? Leave yourself open. I think Henry Nouwen talks about this uh, in his book with, with closed hands or with, he talks about the clenched fist, right? That all of us are holding on to life tightly with our hands so closed that we don't open our hands and receive what the Lord is trying to do in our lives. The other thing is this, is uh, being in relationships with people who can be honest with you and uh, that you can be vulnerable with, that can even speak into the direction in which you're going. Uh, I think taking personal inventory, um, uh, starting with smaller projects as opposed to bigger projects. I, I, I remember the first campaign that I ever did. I didn't have a, we didn't have a building. We didn't have a budget or anything. Uh, my family allowed me to uh, uh, sleep on the streets. Uh, that's the first campaign. They allowed me to stay on the streets for an entire month to advocate and use my cell phone and document all these things. Uh, and so I ate out of trash cans. I was put out of shelters. I you know, slept underneath bridges. I burned donated clothes underneath bridges uh, in the community that I was uh, sleeping with 
those of my friends that were experiencing homelessness to stay warm. Uh, I know what it's like to, you know, be put out of a shelter because you're five minutes late past the curfew. And I went through all of those experiences, but I used my cell phone to document it, uh, to bring attention to it. And little did I know we would start getting people off of the streets underneath bridges, reuniting them with their family members, just using technology. That's all I had was my cell phone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I guess the message I'm trying to communicate is that the Lord doesn't need a lot. He just needs your willingness and your availability and um, you uh, being okay with using what you have in front of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well said. Um, What's something you, I think we'll ask one more question and transition into our better Samaritan questions, but we, what would you say is something that you wish people who don't spend a lot of time working in systemic poverty issues like you do, what would it be helpful for them to understand about systemic poverty that they might not, you know, they don't get in the news. They don't get just, you know, a normal church service where it's, you know, helping out, uh, donating to a food pantry, all of which can be helpful, but what's something that you wish, you know, if people could know better, they might be able to be better at helping. Yeah, sure. Well, that's a loaded question. Uh, is a very complex question. I don't think I have enough time, but I will say this. I think we need to reimagine how we view people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty. There has been a very criminalized view of a person to experience these plights, that if you're poor or homeless, that means you're lazy or uneducated or don't have any character or morals, um, which could be further from the truth. Also think that we need to stop labeling and putting people into buckets. You know, one of the the number one thoughts about people who experience homelessness and poverty uh, is that uh, there's a mental health issue or a drug addiction, right? Uh, my rebuttal or my challenge to that is, um, uh, you know, if you strip away the label and center your focus on the person, right, and use first person language, then you would really understand that every person has a unique story in how they arrive in this plight. Like if I didn't own a truck, you wouldn't call me truckless, right? Or if I didn't have a microphone, you wouldn't say, oh, this person is microphoneless, right? I think these labels within the context of themselves uh, hinder us from fully seeing people in all of their humanity. There are some people who lost jobs. Uh, We can feel this pain right here during COVID. You know, over nine million people are three months behind mm-hmm. on rent or uh, their mortgage. Many people have been furloughed. Sometimes you get sick uh, and you can't function or work on on a job. There are women who are fleeing domestic violence. There are so many different avenues into this fight. And so mm-hmm. when we have this very criminal view of this experience, that means we start to look at people as problems instead of people going through problems. Mm-hmm. You know, what if you were only known for the worst moment in your life? How would you feel? So I think that uh, gives us an opportunity to truly see our neighbors as Jesus has called us to. 
what does it mean to love your neighbor? It means to love your neighbor, but also uh, love the neighborhood that shaped that neighbor and also be concerned with the issues that the neighborhood faces that shape that neighbor. So it's a more holistic view of uh, your neighbor instead of like having this very distant and vague, oh, I love my neighbors. Like, what does that actually mean? Does that mean that you spend time with them? Does that mean that you know them by name? Does that mean that you spent time seeing them? That Does that mean that you understand uh, their story uh, fully and that you really have uh, understanding and respect for the Imago Dei in them? Uh, is, does that mean that you're trying to give somebody dignity because you can't give anybody dignity? You can only affirm it, right? It, there's so many different things that you have to work through, but I, I think we need to start with the filters that we have. Um, I love, I love how you said that the, um, cause you turned that word systemic can feel sort of clinical and distant and I need to be what reading economics, you know, reports and city manuals. But I love how you said, I, I won't be able to repeat it. I'm going to ask you to say it one more time, but you know, to love your neighbor and then love your neighbor's neighborhood and love the neighborhood that's shaping. Can you say one more time? Or did, I just loved how you said that. I'm going to, I want to learn. Yeah, I want to learn it, that just as a way to communicate about systemic issues. Yeah, when uh, I, I just think when, as Christians, when we say we're called to love our neighbor, we can't love the neighbor without loving the neighborhood that shaped the neighbor, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. also being concerned with the issues that the neighborhood faces, that the neighbor uh, emerges from, and what try what what we tend to do is try to love the neighbor, but separate them from their social location, right? And you can't do that because the neighbor's uh, social location and the neighbor, his or herself or themselves are all integrated, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, The other thing too is that we try to, we, this phraseology, um, you know, toxic charity or whatever, uh, I truly believe in relief work and development work. Uh, there's a, a old adage or cliche that says you, you need to teach a man how to fish, right? Well, my rebuttal to that is if you teach a person how to fish without giving them a fish sandwich, they'll pass out before they learn anything, right? <laughs> and we just have to understand that it takes this dual work uh, with walking with people, but also uh, being a, a strong representation of that person. I love the Good Samaritan's parable. He came to where he was. He picked him up and then it cost cost him something. I think oftentimes we look at issues and we say, oh, we want to help from a distance or we'll walk by whatever you choose to do. And then, um, you know, it doesn't cost us anything. But what what ends up happening is the real cost is associated with the words that we spew out of our mouths the judgment that we have towards a certain population. Uh, We think that uh, poor people who are making uh, minimum wage, which 20 states still adhere to the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour, uh, should just have financial literacy, right? You're gonna educate somebody on how to manage your finances, but there's no county in America where you can own a one bedroom apartment right, on Mm $7.25 an hour. Mm -hmm. And so it's a much more robust uh, conversation. 
than what we give ourselves the space and time to think about because it's easier just to generalize and move on. As you mentioned, the the Better Samaritan, this parable that guide, guides us as a podcast in these conversations, when I shift into the five questions we ask every guest. And so the first one is, what's something that has surprised you in your work recently? Uh, what has surprised me? Yeah, so last year, uh, our organization had to, to pivot from a more centralized model to a decentralized model, meaning that we have a community center. We still have a center, uh, but as the world was closing down, we started to hear these uh, these very deep concerns from our neighbors uh, who are experiencing homelessness, saying, "You know, I don't have anywhere to wash my hands." Right? Um, the everybody's saying, "Wash your hands," but I don't have any access to water. And so, because our organization has been uh, traditionally uh, involved in using RV units to temporarily house people to help people transition out of homelessness to become uh, self-sustaining citizens. Um, there's a feature on the RV, you know, porta potties, portable cooking station, portable hand washing stations that people frequently use for uh, leisure. I had this idea to repurpose this portable hand washing station and to just start placing sinks in the street. That's what I told my wife. She said, you should do it. So I started uh, with five, uh, it grew to 15, and now we have portable hand washing stations in 57 cities all across the United States. Uh, people having access to sanitation, uh, because I believe sanitation should be a human right, uh, being able to wash their hands and protect themselves against the spread and contraction of COVID-19. And so all of these companies got involved, I mean, from Porsche to the NFL Foundation to Bronnie to uh, Coca-Cola, I mean, you name it, uh, helped us to um, grow this campaign. And on any given week right now with partners all around the country, I mean, it's 30,000 plus people washing their hands per week uh, just from a simple idea. And that surprised me. And I, I equate hand washing to the washing of feet uh, in the Bible. Mm. And how have you been personally learning to do good better in this work? Yeah. I think the, the thing that I've been learning most that has given me the strength to endure uh, as a frontline worker, as a ministry worker, is staying vulnerable. Uh, I think vulnerability is a gift transparency is a gift. Um, there's a quote that one of my mentors used to say a long time ago. He says that uh, secrecy produces more weakness. Um, that if you open yourself up and then you, you, you make known your, uh, your, your wrestling and your struggles, your triumphs and your joys, you know, the bees and the honey, the rolls and the thorns, when you uh, bring all of those things together then it gives you uh, the ability to stay, to, to remain grounded. And I, I would say that my vulnerability has been one of the things that I've leaned in uh, most to, even with my own self-care journey and uh, taking care of myself, you know, taking care of my family, as well as uh, trying to show up the best of my ability to, to love 
love my neighbor, you know, that the loving of self, the loving of God, the loving of self gives me the strength and the vulnerability and the courage to show up and be fully present for my neighbor. So I would, I would just say vulnerability. And how do you define humility in the context of working in your field, you know, systemic poverty, people experiencing homelessness? How do you define humility? Yeah, you can never be an expert in someone's, someone else's reality that is not your own. Um, even if you have similar stories or background, uh, humility is uh, the humbling of oneself and taking the posture of student. Um, I see all of life as a classroom. I, I learn from uh, my friends without an address, just as much as I would learn from a CEO that I'm sitting next to that's trying to donate to our organization. I see everybody as a 10, right? I don't start people off with uh, some existential uh, measure, metric system because I think that we've gotten uh, the way that we measure worth and value in our country wrong. We start with all of these extrinsic things. What kind of school, what school do you go to? What kind of coffee you drink? You know, what group you're a part of? What books have you read? You know, we start with all of these extrinsic things. I always like to start with intrinsic worth and value of a person, right? Um, because if we start with that, then the playing field is level. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I engage in relationships or I'm proximate to my community, the one way I stay humble is knowing that at any given moment, at any given second, I can learn from the person that I'm uh, sitting across from. And I, how dare I prop myself up as an expert in someone else's reality. I never do it. I stay away from it. But I do uh, make the commitment to walk with people in, in their re reality. And what's one thing you think could make the road safer? Yeah, I think more people are needed on the road. You know, uh, if we use this as a metaphor uh, from the Better Samaritan parable, um, you know, we talk about the context of Jericho and, you know, we, we got to wrestle with like what produced the robbers, what, what is the social context that created the climate, all those things. Was it dark on the road? Was there uh, more lighting that was needed on the road? Who made the decision not to put lighting on the road? You know, why weren't there uh, any officers or police officers guarding the road? You know, uh, where were the people who could have been volunteering on the road? Uh, would more people have provided extra protection uh, for this community? It's, it's all of these things that your imagination can like run with and talking about that, but I think more people are needed on the road because there's safety in community is what I'm communicating. Um, that because we are a part of the, the family of God, that there's this sense of, of protection and safety uh, when we show up together, right? And that that is the ultimate message that I'm trying to communicate. Love that. Well said. And then fifth and last question, uh, how do you sustain hope in the midst of this work? And when we started the conversation with this, it was big picture hope, but I want to turn it to like a specific practice. Are there any practices that you do in your life, day-to-day -day life that help you sustain hope? Yes. Uh, I work out every day. I laugh with my wife. Um, I joke with my kids. And I'm not just saying this, uh, 
in a very like cliche manner. Like I really have a a great relationship with my family. Um, this is our journey. This is our work. And so we have found a space where we block off time. One day we may be doing TikTok videos. The next day we may be doing uh, Nerf gun fights or water fights or whatever. But I think having that type of framework that is rhythmic in my life has sustained me. Mm. That when I look at my, uh, my wife and she says something to me like, you know, you're doing the best you can. Um, let's go have fun. And it just like shuts me down and I like focus on something else. When she works out with me in the morning every single day and we create this margin and space uh, just to be with each other, but also to commune with God. Uh, therapy, right, which is uh, can be a wherever you fall on this spectrum can be either a really great thing. Jesus in therapy, right, or a really bad thing. You don't need therapy. You just got God, right? Whatever, wherever you fall. But I think uh, therapy and helping to process emotions and traumas and and things that you experience, even in ministry, because there's a thing called vicarious trauma, right? When you're mm-hmm. helping to carry somebody else's pain or burden, that the residue of that can, uh, it, you know, uh, overwhelm you. It can get inside of you, you know, and so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think uh, practicing uh, all sorts of self-care and and just making myself vulnerable and opening myself up to uh, safe relationships has has kept me grounded. And I just love to laugh. One of my favorite things to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. when I, my colleague and I, who started an NGO, you know, back uh, fifteen, like dozen years ago or something. But when we were first doing, it, we made this list of what did we want it to be about. I tell my students about this, and we made our like, what's most important? Like, we're going to do this work. How are we going to do this? And then we put in li- on the list. We only want to work with people we laugh with. You know, because it's so <laughs> es- it's so essential to being able to do this kind yeah. of work for yeah. the short term and the long term. So I, I love that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Do work with people you can laugh with. And that has been a saving grace, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, Terrence, it's been a joy talking with you. Love this. Uh, so grateful for what you do. Grateful to learn with and from you. Um, so now I just want, I think other people who hear this are going to want to stay connected with you. Encourage people to check out When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. That's uh, newly out with our friends at University Press. And also to check out Love Beyond Walls, Houston. Tell people where they can connect with you there, if there's social media or anything else you'd like people to know about. Yeah, sure. If you would like to look up Love Beyond Walls, you can visit lovebeyondwalls.org. Or if you want to follow us on social media, it's at Love Beyond Walls. That's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want to follow me, uh, that's I'm Terrence Lester, I-M-T-E-R-E-N-C-E-L-E-S-T-E-R. And that's on all of the same social platforms. Well, thank you, Terrence. Great to be with you. Thanks for encouraging us to um, to keep keep standing and seeking justice together. Yeah, man. It was, it was so awesome being here. Thank you all for having me. Well, thank you for joining us for this conversation with Terrence Lester. I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I found insights from him and then fresh language on these big issues, big issues, but also these day-to-day issues of how we can engage uh, to learn from and work with uh, others who are facing challenging circumstances. One quote from his book that we didn't touch on that was great is, 
this. One of the greatest enemies in the context of seeking to move forward and to make a difference is not a shortage of resources, but rather a lack of connection and community. Really liked how how Terrence brought out the importance of connection and community and how important they are to helping us to do good better. Thanks for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. You can find links to the things we mentioned during this episode in the show notes. And special thanks to The Brilliance for this fantastic music theme. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. You can also follow the Humanitarian Disaster Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next week as we continue learning to do good better. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions. Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.